Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Hightower Advisors. And Stephanie is also a CNBC contributor, so you might recognize her. In this conversation, we got Stephanie's reaction to the Federal Reserve's 50 basis points rate hike and her outlook on monetary policy. We also got Stephanie's outlook on the economy and the markets in the year ahead, where she's seen opportunities. We also talked about how she's spoken to every single CEO in her portfolio, and she revealed what makes for a great CEO. We also talked about her time working for Jim Cramer, how she got into this space, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Stephanie, and I think you will too. Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Hightower Advisors and a CNBC contributor. It is so great to welcome you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you, especially today um, uh, with the Fed decision, uh, hiking interest rates by 50 basis points. And of course, as we're having this conversation, uh, Jerome Powell is answering reporters' questions. And I was hoping maybe we can just kind of start uh, with the Fed's decision. I know you've been watching um, Jay Powell's comments. would love to just kind of start with your reaction uh, with today's decisions and some of those comments that we're hearing. Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's really it's an interesting combination between the pre- between the press release and then the presser because they're both pretty hawkish. Um, Fifty basis point hike was is is was expected, uh, but if you look at the dot plot, and that's just what the what the median average of all the Fed officials are expecting for the Fed funds to peak at the terminal rate, um, that was actually a little more hawkish. It came in at five point one percent. Um, people expected, I mean, the number officially was 5.1, but I think some people thought it would actually come down after yesterday's CPI number. But in fact, it stayed at 5.1, and that's versus 4.6% at last meeting. And the interesting thing, I think, is that 17 out of 19 of the Fed officials now expect uh, uh, Fed funds peak above 5% for 2023, and that's versus zero in September, zero Fed officials expected to go above five. So that's where the hawkishness comes in. And then of course, there are a couple of comments like from Powell, like they need uh, to see substantially more evidence of lower inflation and they're not yet restrictive yet. Um, And so therefore you're gonna see ongoing rate hikes. So all of this stuff means that we're probably gonna see 75 basis points of hikes in 2023 uh, versus the 50 basis point level. Um, And it's not, I thought one of the comments as well was it's not the speed anymore of that's important. It's how long they stay there. And so that was like the one little, I think, carrot maybe of we're going to be data dependent. And if we see substantial progress on on, on inflation, then they'll make some changes. But it just sounds like they just don't know what's going on. Seriously, they should be ratcheting down the big hawkishness they can still be hawkish but why not wait after one or two rates next next year uh and then see what the data shows rather than all of a sudden you get these numbers uh and and the dot plots that are really pretty pretty hawkish um i i was encouraged by yesterday's cpi number and i think all of us were which is why you think the markets rallied initially because it, it did clearly show that, that the CPI and the PPI, they're starting to decelerate. The problem is 
they still remain very high on an absolute level. And I think that is exactly what the Fed is focused on. Got it. Um, as you point out, um, and you even tweeted this, uh, 17 out of 19 Fed officials now see the Fed funds above 5% versus zero in, in September. And I think I also heard you, you mentioned, um, you know, possibly 75 basis points being back on the table. Are you talking about like in a single meeting raising 75 basis points? No, I actually think you're probably going to see 25, 25, and then maybe 25. Um, because he, Powell, specifically said it's not about the level or the speed or the amount. I mean, they've raised rates of four and a quarter percent this year, but they've done a bunch of 75s. And so he was asked the question, um, do you see doing another 75 or do you see a big, big rate increases at, at the meetings? And he simply said, I don't think we're at the point where we need to do 75s anymore. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he said, we just need to figure out, we need to get to the level where we're comfortable and then we're going to figure out where, how long we need to stay there. And, and you had some people, Julia, that were saying, you know, they're, that the Fed is going to start easing, pivoting, pausing, in the first quarter of next year. And this just doesn't sound like it. So why aren't we down more in the markets right now? It's because, now this is just a theory of mine, markets are gonna be all over the place because they always are on the days of the Fed and the day after. We have to just kind of get our, our footing. But I think what's happening is that the markets are saying, once again, you're behind the curve and we can see that things are getting better on inflation and that you're gonna be wrong on lowering the GDP and lower and raising the unemployment rate and increasing and being as as hawkish as they have been, markets may not believe the Fed. So I have to kind of see, um, it's sort of interesting to see what's happening in the bond market. Initially, the bond market sold off and now it's actually rallying. So we'll see what happens. There's a lot of time though, between now and, and say February, January, February, February, is is the time is the next time that they meet they don't even meet in january so we now have to wait and uh and and we'll we will all analyze the data between now and then yeah i have to wait for the february meeting um do you think that that a pivot or pause kind of off the table in q1 uh yeah i do <laughs> yeah i do i think i think pivot is uh off the table i think pause if we get a couple of good numbers, maybe at least the market is going to extrapolate that they will pause. So pivot, it's interesting in in, um, in my team uh, uh, this morning, we had our team meeting and, and someone had asked me, well, what do you think pivot actually means? And I just naturally said, oh, that just means that they're going to start easing. And I don't see that anytime soon. And I had a couple of really thoughtful comments um, from my folks saying, well, maybe pivot just means they, they get out of the way. They don't do anything. They just do the the, the next couple of, of hikes, and then they and then they just say, "We're just going to see." I'm not so sure. I, I'm I'm in agreement, but that's a theory out there for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so helpful. Like just you know, you talk to a lot of folks and and kind of hearing what you're hearing, and um, I think that's what a lot of people really like um, about you too. Like when we watch you on CNBC, um, I know you're really plugged in and have a lot of great conversations, a lot of great insight too, and the fact that you actually are managing money, um, so you you actually have skin in the game in the market too. Um, on the inflation bit, uh, we got the cooler than expected CPI uh, print this week. Um, what are you looking for as it relates to inflation or what are you thinking about or what are you kind of hearing uh, from the folks you're talking to? 
Yeah, so so you've got a couple of pieces of inflation. There's goods and there's services. And good the good news from yesterday is goods um, uh, uh, inflation has come down. Um, it was 12.3% in February, Julia. It, yesterday, it registered 3.7%. That was great. I mean, really progress. And that's a function of supply chains getting easier as well as in uh, consumers shifting their focus from buying stuff that they needed over the last three years for, because we were stay at home to going out. So that makes a lot of sense. The problem is services inflation actually accelerated from 6.7% year over year last month to 6.8. And that is 73% of core CPI. And that is exactly what Powell was talking about today. He said, and oh, by the way, the services component about a third of that is wages. Maybe it's even a little bit more than a third. So it's hard to see wages going down in the face of a very tight labor market. I mean, even even they raised their unemployment rate from next to next year um, a little bit, but it's still historically at low levels. And I listen to companies because as you mentioned, I run money. And so I listen to my companies say, they are still having a really hard time finding people. Um, in fact, a company I don't own, but it's uh, Yum Brands had an analyst day, investor day uh, yesterday, and they and I was sort of keen on hearing, are you, are you being able to get more people? No, they still can't find people. Mm. So that's just one example, but I've been hearing the same thing. So, so I think that it's the services piece that's a big chunk of inflation driven by wages, that's going to be stubborn, stubbornly high and sticky. Mm, um, and yeah. so that's kind of what I'm going to be watching going forward. Yeah, I'd imagine it'd be kind of hard to take wages down like once you start offering higher wages. Um, let me ask you this then, because the Fed, um, they still seem like committed to this goal of getting inflation back to 2%. Can they do that? Or is that kind of like, not realistic? You know, they can do it if they put us into a recession and they slow us down in a pretty big way. Um, you have 4 million people out of the workforce at this point in time um, uh, versus pre-pandemic. I think half of that are people that have retired. Half of that are people that have opened their own businesses. And they're not going to really go back into the, the in, in full speed into the workforce. So. Um, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a challenge, to be honest with you. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see. But I, I, I look, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, but that's certainly top of mind for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I want to kind of step back and talk a bit of big picture. I do know that you look at the big picture. And of course, like we're wrapping up 2022 um, and heading into 2023. So what for you, Stephanie, right now is kind of your big picture view of the um, economy, maybe globally here domestically and also the the markets. So so here's what I this is this is what I think. I think we are making progress on inflation. I do agree with the Fed that it is absolutely high, still too high, but I do think it's going to come down and that's important. Um, we'll have to see how, all of these Fed increase, uh, rate increases rather from the Fed. Well, what's the impact? Because there's a lag impact of six to nine to 10 months time. And so we have just raised rates to levels people haven't seen in years, in decades, quite frankly. We have a zero interest rate policy for a very, very long time. And that's been a tailwind to the economy, to earnings, to the markets. So, uh, I think 
um, that's kind of the the thing I, I I just watch and think about. But I will say that the markets are a discounting mechanism, and we are down 16% year to date in the S and P 500. We're down double digits in fixed income. Julia, I think people forgot that you could actually lose money in fixed income, yeah. right? We all know equity markets are volatile and that sort of thing. But I think the fixed income piece has certainly surprised folks. Uh, and we'll have to see how that plays itself out. Um, let me offer something positive. So while I do think that we're going to slow next year, and I don't know if it's a recession or just really, really low growth, I do think earnings are going to have to come down. But I think we're discounting a lot. Let me let me just say, though, that we just talked about jobs being quite strong. Job openings are still more than un the un uh, unemployed people. Um, wages are higher. And while I know that's a problem for the Fed, it's not a problem for, for the consumer. Um, at least they're not matching inflation. But as inflation comes down and wages remain strong, that's a little bit better for the consumer. Um, even the University of Michigan sentiment numbers are telling you that. I mean, we're now up three months in a row in the University of Michigan sentiment numbers, and they're citing lower gas prices, but also they expect to make more money next year. We'll see how that works its way through, but that's an important data point. Uh, the biggest thing, I think, for earnings um, will be the dollar. The dollar has been weak. That's a, that's a good thing because last quarter alone, uh, the strong dollar hit earnings by 8%. So as the dollar rolls over, that's good for multinational companies. At the same time, uh, the, um, the, the, the prices uh, of all kinds of inputs, like commodities and that sort of thing, is down. And in fact, let me give you a little wonky stat here. It's probably way too wonky. No, we but love it. <laughs> the, the, the core crude PC, PPE, PPI rather on Friday, um, the core crude PPI fell 8% year over year. That's a good thing for the feed through to the, to the CPI, but also again, it explains why the University of Michigan sentiment was was a little bit better than, than better than expected. And then, lastly, I would say is the Atlanta Fed GDP now. This is some this is an uh, a, a, an, an, a segment of the Fed that actually looks at all of the data that has come out, and they don't have any opinion. They just stick it through their system, their computers. It comes out and spits out a GDP number based on all the economic feed feeds that go in. And that number for the fourth quarter shows GDP at 3.2%. So we have gone from negative GDP in the first and second quarters um, earlier this year to a 2.9% GDP in the third quarter. And now something better than what we saw last quarter. Now that number could be revised down. There's no question about it. It's very volatile, but it's encouraging that it's positive and so my point being is we do have a lot of momentum right now in the economy. And so while the Fed wants to slow this down in a big, big way, at least we're starting from a stronger point than what most people are talking about. Yeah, that's a really good point, um, starting from a stronger point than most are talking about. Um, right. I would love to hear from you, Stephanie, uh, just a bit about how you invest. Like, What is kind of your general approach to investing? Yeah, so um, so I'm a I run a large cap core portfolio, and I have for quite quite some time. Um, goes back to my 
Jim Cramer days when I ran money for him for the for his charitable trust, and and then when I was at Nuveen for for, for five years. Um, it's really large cap core is sort of it's it, it kind of gives you the flexibility to be growth and because it's really growth and value. It's a it's a blend, and so the way I approach my portfolio is. If it's a blend, I have to have kind of a macro point of view. And so I kind of think, I step back and I, I kind of think about, okay, what's happening in, in strategy, in, in the macro, around the world, looking at all of the central bankers, business cycles, all that's economic cycles, everything. So I'm kind of big picture. So about 40% of my time is big picture to try to figure out where I want to be what, what, where I want to be in, in terms of uh, the geographies. Do I want to be more large cap, mega cap? Do I want to be growth or value, growth and value, more value, more growth, whatever that, that means in terms of style. And so I kind of think about all of these things and it that kind of dictates where I where I'm going to be in terms of sectors and whether I'm overweight or underweight or market weight uh, sector, certain sectors. And so that's how I start. And then I spend a lot of time, once I figure out where I want to be sector wise, overweight and underweight, then I go and I look at fundamentals, um, all kinds of things in terms of that number one or number two, uh, companies in the respective industries. I look at, which is very, very important to me. I always want to own the number one or number two player, uh, if, if possible. Um, I always want to focus on management teams and the bench of the management teams and what their historical execution records are. Um, I always want to look at the balance sheets, the free cash flow. What are they doing with the free cash flow? I'm hoping that they're plowing money back into the business, but I also want to see shareholder friendly um, actions as well. So dividend increases, buybacks, etc. cetera. Um, and I also like to find a little spicy part of it is, is there, are there, are any of these companies down for a reason, a specific reason? Is it overall market problems and everything's getting thrown out? Are there margin expansion stories? Are there restructuring stories? Because you can own a stock and think it's a good bargain, right? Um, and like kind of growth at a reasonable price, but it can stay as a bargain for a very long time, unless you have a catalyst. I don't need a catalyst next tomorrow or next month or next quarter, but if I can see a company that uh, has opportunity to improve their margins, that's where you're really going to see operating leverage. Because if demand stays strong uh, and you have better margins, you're gonna see all that operating leverage to the bottom line. And that's what the market pays for. Valuations are also very important. Uh, I will not own a non-earner. That's, uh, that's a non-starter for me. Um, I understand why people do. It's fun. But um, non-earners will go up when momentum is in your favor. But when the momentum turns, it's very, very hard to value companies uh, that don't have earnings. So I look at um, kind of, as I mentioned earlier, growth at a reasonable price. Uh, and this is what I would say kind of my kind of market in that everything has gotten hit really hard this year. Markets are down 15%, but I have blue chip best in breed companies that are down 20, 30, 40%. And I can find a whole bunch of companies that I that I like and stock prices where valuations are reasonable. And hopefully over the long run, uh, will we'll work themselves through.
I like that. There's like there's like a wealth of information uh, within that. A couple of things I want to pick up. So, sounds to me like you're finding opportunities um, right now. And I, is this more of like are these like more of like value plays right now? Like what what are I don't know what you can share, but like what is kind of exciting to you from like an opportunity standpoint? Sure, sure. So so this year, yeah, I have been a little bit more value versus growth. Um, because mainly because if, when interest rates go higher, long duration assets, which really is a definition of growth assets and, and technology in particular, they tend to suffer because their cash flows get cut, right? So, um, and then they can't invest and valuations really matter. So when higher, when rates are higher, you want to own lower multiple stocks. So I have been definitely more on the value side of things. I'm, I'm overweight energy, industrials, materials. Uh, to a lesser degree, financials, um, totally out of anything kind of housing discretionary, but I am starting to nibble. I got out of in, uh, semiconductors for the most part in March of earlier this year because I was afraid of double and triple ordering, starting to think that th that sector is really interesting. And in fact, I recently purchased a name um, this uh, earlier this week, and I've been adding to an existing one too because I just think you know, there are some of these stocks that are trading at 13, 14 times earnings with great cash flow, with good um, dividends and and good businesses. And we kind of know a lot of the bad news. We know there's double and triple ordering that has happened across the entire economy, every sector. But specifically in semiconductors, I think they've gotten really hit. Some of these stocks were down 50, 60 percent. They're still down about 30 or 40 percent. So I think that there are definitely opportunities um uh, in that sector as well, but overall, in in technology, I am I am underweight. Uh, with again, because of higher rates, just higher harder to own more expensive stocks and more longer duration assets. Um, I'm very bullish on energy. I, I know that's a little bit more consensus these days uh, than it has been, um, but I I do think that structurally that industry has changed. Uh, I think that they have heard from the ESG folks to focus on clean and green and to not overproduce so there's not a boom bust cycle and return that cash to shareholders uh, that they're receiving. And they're generating huge, huge free cash flow. Um, and the dividends are, are very, um, very compelling. And the valuations are compelling because in energy, the interesting thing is it's like the only sector that where earnings are actually going higher. So the multiples are coming down. So they're getting cheaper and cheaper. So I, I still like that group. I think uh, the materials and mining sector, I think they have a lot of pricing power. And that is important. In fact, I have a company, Cleveland Cliffs, that just raised prices just yesterday after raising prices six months ago because they can and they have uh, what everybody wants and there's not enough of it. I think industrials are very interesting, especially given the onshoring trends. Also, I think that China is very interesting, not getting enough credit for 2023 and the growth potential that that country has, given that they are reopening. I don't think they're going to go back to nine, 10% growth, but I think three, four, 5% would be just fine for demand for some of the mining and materials companies. Oh, by the way, also energy um, and financials. I just think they're so cheap. Uh, and uh, as long as you know, loan losses don't go uh, crazy, uh, I think that the valuations along with the capital positions are 
really very, um, very attractive at this point. But we'll keep an eye on that sector for sure. Yeah, um, a lot of sounds like a lot of opportunity out there. You also mentioned um, that as part of your process, you and you said this was important to you. Um, number one or number two in their industries, just like a quick follow on, like, um, can you share with folks like why that's so important to you? So sorry, Julia. Hold on a second. I don't know what. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, I just missed the first part of your okay. question. Um, I don't know what happened there. Oh, good. We can always edit that out. Um, you mentioned as part of your process that you like to look at uh, the number one or number two within their respective industries and why that is that's important to you and your process. Can you just quickly share with folks like why why that's so important to your process? It, you know, and, and thank you for asking that because it's something I actually learned from Jim Cramer way back in the day. Um, I would always go for the number three, number four company. I'm like, oh, it's so cheap and it's uh, it's there's such an opportunity. And and he would say it's cheap for a reason. You know, there's obviously something that they're not doing because they're not number one or number two. And it, how obvious is that? That is just so Peter Lynch to me. Right. Common sense. So um, I think that not being number one or number two, especially if it's like the stock is down and down and out or not liked or um, or out of favor for whatever reason, um, I, I just find that is sort of an important an important metric because they have a history of executing. They have a reason why they're number one or number two. There's a reason why the, why the stock might be down. Uh, well, what is that reason? Is there a catalyst to get that stock back up? Starbucks is the perfect example of that. Um, Nike is the perfect example of that. Estee Lauder is the perfect example of that, that they may be down and out for a multitude of reasons. And I will tell you, all three have a commonality of having a lot of China exposure, right? Um, but Caterpillar too, same thing. So I could list a bunch of companies that have gotten hit hard this year because of the macro, but the micro, they're still executing on. And that's what's super important, mm -hmm. that in a challenging time, these number one or number two players, great management teams will figure out how to fix it, how to get it better. And it may not be right away, it may not be in the next quarter or two, it may be a couple of years. But I think I sleep better at night owning that uh, knowing that they have a great track record and they have the balance sheet to give them time to actually fix whatever is wrong or just wait for the macro to improve. Got it. Um, I take it you own those names that you mentioned as well. I do. Yeah. I do. Um, I, uh, I, I do think that the consumer, so I didn't mention that I'm, I'm over, I'm, I'm, I'm a little overweight consumer just because I own these names. Um, but I do think that the consumer, I find betting against the consumer, Julia, is not a great thing. Over, over the years, people want to say the consumer is going to roll over and just not, not spend. We are a nation of spenders. We just are. Whether we have to take on debt or use that 3% savings rate that, uh, and use the checks that they're getting from the government, they do. So, I think that, and I think the consumer is actually in a little bit better shape than people think. I look at the credit card, like charge off numbers, the non-performing loan numbers, uh, all that kind of thing. And um, I, so far it's been, it's been pretty okay. I know there's inflation. I know we're seeing slower growth, but we also have a record number of job openings out there. And so if you, as I mentioned earlier, if you want a job, you can get a job and you can get higher 
you can get uh, paid more to, to do that job. And so I think we're in okay shape, but that's the consumer. For for those for the other names that I, the, that I mentioned, there are certainly company-specific things that are happening with all of them, uh, but they are led by the top of the top in terms of management teams. Mm-hmm. And to that point with management teams, how do you um, evaluate management teams? Do you have a, a process? Um, I take it also maybe even being on CNBC, I imagine you get to have conversations with folks or you probably talk to the management or interact with them in some capacity. What's sort of the process there? Yeah. So um, I, uh, all the, all the names in my portfolio that I own, um, I actually have met every CEO. And uh, that's just a function of being old, by the way. You're not I mean, old. seriously, definitely not old, business, Stephanie. I've been, I've been in this business for thirty years, okay. so it's a function of being old and being around. And I've met them. So what I have learned is to get to know the management teams, to know their personalities, to know what their track records are. Uh, and in my portfolio, I have actually met every single CEO. I don't want to own a company where I haven't met the CEO. And I listen to conference calls all the time, like everybody else, and goes goes go to conferences and go to the analyst days, or whether it's on LinkedIn or in person or whatever. Sorry, whether it's on uh, a, a WebEx or Zoom or in person. But I do think it's important to get to know the companies, get to know the body language, listening to their commentary and the tone. I think that's also very very important. And the and the longer I know CEOs. Um, and also CFOs and the bench. I think that's equally as important. You can kind of tell when there is a, a, a tone change or there is a um, something that's happening at the company that maybe you can't put your finger on it, but you you, you sense things. Um, and so I just feel like I want to know that I want to know the track record. I want to know what their strategy is. I want to know what their free cash flow uh, strategy is as well. And so it's sort of fun to be on TV because what often happens is someone will link into me and they will, uh, usually it's this, the IR person, but I've gotten um, the CEO of IBM, for example, who has linked into me and the IR person there too. And when I first was speaking about IBM on TV and how I recently bought the stock, and I got a LinkedIn saying, would you like to would you like to have a meeting? And I thought that was sort of interesting. And it's very telling those companies that are very proactive in terms of wanting to tell a good story uh, and wanting to tell um, and get their get the word out, especially, by the way, when 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 the stock is probably out of favor. Uh, that's when I find I get the most attention. But um, that's kind of that's kind of the value investor that I am that. When a stock is down and out, no one wants to pay attention to it. And then they call the uh, the uh, management team calls, and then it's like, oh, there's 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 got to be something good that's happening because there's no way that a team management team would reach out. And it's nothing; it's all above board because they're doing analyst meetings and they're doing client meetings and all that sort of thing. But it is it is fun to uh, to have that visibility on TV. For sure. Absolutely. Um. I, I just maybe you get asked this or um, it's something something I get asked, too, because I've interviewed a lot of CEOs over the years. Like, what do you think are the qualities that make for a great leader? Mm, that's a that's a that's a great question. I think what I have learned over the years is that a great CEO has people that are around him or her that are even stronger. Uh, and I actually take on 
this kind of philosophy, given that I, I run a, a my, my, my team, uh, I want smarter people around me because that will make me smarter um, and that'll make the whole team smarter. Uh, I also think that execution is very important, but I like CEOs that under promise and over deliver. I like a CEO that shows where there's opportunity where there's a total addressable market that's attractive and how they're going to go after it, how they're going to go after gaining market share. And then, of course, it's more the CFO than the CEO that's talking about free cash flow and what they're going to do with all the money and how they're going to spend. But I really do want companies to spend and have a balance of increasing a dividend and increasing a buyback um, or knowing that that's what shareholders want or what do shareholders want. So here's a perfect example. So we were talking about energy before. So happened to own Chevron. I think Exxon is just equally as good. Um, but Mike Worth is the CEO of that company. And about five years ago, he had some pressure from the ESG movement saying you do need to get clean and green and that and this and that. And you also had he also had investors that said, yeah, but we also don't want you to produce, overproduce, and we also want you to have pricing power, and we also want you to cut, cut costs, and we want operating leverage. And so I, you know, I, obviously he, it wasn't just from me, it was from a lot of the various different investors. So he had the kind of the one-two punch, and you know, he, he got the, he, he, he got the game, he got it. He figured out what they were going to do. They were going to lower costs, they weren't going to overproduce. They were going to get clean and green. They were also going to take all that free cash flow that they've been making and and put it into some production, but also send it back to shareholders. Morgan Stanley is another example of that too. The, James Gorman has done a great job at organizing that company to where he needs it to be. They're, he's done a lot of M&A. He's done less. Um, he's now they are now less than focused and, and, and levered to higher interest rates. They're still they're still levered to higher interest rates, but less so because they've made so much in terms of M&A. He's diversifying the business mix. He has uh, used a lot of the uh, of, of the of the uh, cash in hand to increase their capital positions more so than the regulators are even requiring. So the balance sheet and the capital positions are really solid. And he has now a 3.3% dividend. I can't say many other financial companies that have that high of a dividend because he gets it. He knows that, hey, I wanna be different and I wanna try to change the company and realize what it what it takes to do that and get there. And he put really smart people around him as well. And I can go on and on and on and on about a variety of different companies. Watch watch uh, watch Larry Culp at GE. Um, watch uh, watch the Boeing e e e CEO. Uh, watch J and J, the new CEO. I mean, there's a lot of names out there, a lot of companies out there with great management teams that are they kind of get it. They get the gist. Yeah, uh, the teams that get it. And it's a good lesson for anybody, you know, surrounding yourself with smarter uh, people because it's a great way to stay, you know, lifelong learner as well and, um, you know, always learning something new. And yeah, um, you've mentioned Jim Cramer a few times in this conversation. You know, I've had a conversation with him, um, find him to be absolutely lovely um, as a human. I want to hear like your story. Like, how did how did you get linked up with Jim Cramer and worked with him all these years? Like, what is the story there? The story, and then I have a really good one for you because you, you mentioned he is a lovely person, and he really is a lovely. He has a heart of gold. Um, 
that's on the personal side, working for him, a little bit different, a <laughs> little bit more challenging, what was that but like? made, made me a better investor. Um, so, so my story is I was on the sell side um, uh, for 16 years, uh, institutional sales, director of research, a couple of different positions there. And after 16 years, um, I had um, um, uh, my, uh, my daughter and I thought, you know, I would like to try to change the direction of my career. I'd like to try to run money instead of market to portfolio managers and hedge fund managers and and that sort of thing. And so I, um, we had a, uh, Jim and I had a common friend. He was looking for someone to run his charitable trust uh, at the street. And I uh, was looking to run money. Um, so we met for 30 minutes. And Julia, we literally talked 30 minutes only on stocks. Like we didn't ask each other about anything personal. It was like, boom, 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 boom. And at the very end of the conversation, he's like, well, you're hired if you want the job. And I was kind of floored, but I was like, sure. Okay, well, give it a shot. He said, take a month off. You just had your baby. Enjoy her and then come back. We're going to hit the ground running in May. So I did that, hung out with my daughter, um, fell more in love with her. And uh, I, at the end of the month, I had some cold feet. I, I just was nervous about leaving her for five days. And I think that's pretty natural for many new moms. Um, I always wanted a career, and I, but I also wanted a family too. I just felt like I, I, I wanted to have it all. And so I called him up the night before I was supposed to start. And I said, Jim, I can't work for you. And he said, wait a minute, what? <laughs> and so I said, I can't, I can't leave my daughter. I, I can't leave her um, for five days. Um, so um, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. And I really appreciated meeting you and all that. And he said, wait, 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 wait. He said, hold on. What, what is it going to take? And I said, um, well, can I work maybe a couple of days from home, maybe two days from home and then the rest in the city? And he said, hmm, okay. He said, uh, well, why don't you work three days from home and two days in the city so that you can be with her? And I just thought that's that just spoke volumes to me. And that was something that, and by the way, this was in 2007. This isn't when we didn't have Zoom back in the day, right? And right. and we didn't have, you know, WebEx and all that stuff. Um, and I will tell you, working home was harder than working at the office because it was 24-7. It was always 24-7 with him. But that just spoke to me that he had a heart of gold in terms of family priorities and he understood, but he also appreciated that I wanted to learn this part of the business and uh, and to be successful. So um, a hat tip to, to Mr. Kramer. He's he's a gem as a person and he kicked my butt working for him. And, and that's why I think I know how to run money. Some good years, some bad years, but um, at least I uh, I had the I was in the trenches with him. Yeah, and certainly uh, in the trenches. Um, I think you kind of mentioned like you know that the way you kind of picked the one and two number one and number two players. You learned that from Jim. What else? Like what else did you learn from working with him that kind of stands stands out to you? Yeah. So one of the things um, that he always used to hold my feet to the fire was if you like a name. Uh, then you make levels in terms of where you would buy more of a name. So it's very easy to like a name and then you watch a stock go down and then most people say they buy low and sell high, but most people buy high and sell low. And so he taught me, you've got to be committed. If you like a name, if you like a company and you like um, the, 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 the positioning, then you've got to love it 
and you almost have to hope that you that the stock goes down in the short run because we were long-term investors. So he would make me put um, have levels on certain positions, stocks, um, call it IBM. You like it at 150? Do you like it at 140? Do you love it at 120? And oh, by the way, if you do, you are buying it. And that is so hard to do. When a stock is going down and going against the grain and against what you thought, if you really like it and the fundamentals haven't changed, then that's important to have the conviction to, to nibble a little bit. Now, look, not every stock that we picked and, or I picked um, where the, the process didn't change or the story or the fundamentals didn't change. So if, the story's, if the story changes, you've got to assess the situation and figure that out. But if, the, if all else is equal and the stock is just going down because of market gyration, um, you got to make some levels of where you really have the conviction to buy. So I used to send them five stocks every morning and the levels where I would buy them. Okay. I think that's an important point too, of like, you talk about how like most folks are, um, they're buying way too high and selling, or they're selling, what is it? They're buying way too high. They're selling, uh, too low and kind of having that, that conviction. Like, what is it about that? Like, is it, is it like a psychology thing? Like, it sounds like it's like there's a human psychology to be able to actually act on it. Okay, it's falling, buy it. It is so hard to do it. Like literally, I I sometimes am underneath my desk buying when a stock is down. I'm like, oh, but I, I know the fundamentals. I know this is my level where this is the valuation. I, I understand this. I got a year's time horizon. It is so hard to pull the trigger when it's down. 5, 10, 15, 20%. So that's why you don't have to buy a whole huge position. You could buy a little bit and then you buy a little bit more. But the whole point of it is, is that if the fundamentals haven't changed, if your thesis for owning a stock hasn't changed, it's and it's just down for whatever reason. Oh, by the way, it might be down because they had a bad quarter. Right. And, and everyone lost confidence in 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 the in the company and in the stock. But if you think, OK, it's just a one quarter blip or a two quarter blip, um, that is something to keep in mind because it's very, very important um, that you try to stay calm. <laughs> so you mentioned psychology, totally psychology. It's like you can't you cannot get emotional and wrapped up in it. Um, and you kind of have to almost, you do the fundamental analysis and then you got to kind of step away a little bit yes. and think I'm a long-term investor is a quality company and a great, great, great management team. Um, and sometimes you just have to have the confidence in yourself that you know what you're doing, even though the stock price is not rewarding you. Yeah. Like, it sounds like you had already done the work before you kind of knew the levels of where what oh, you yeah. do, you did the fundamental analysis and whatnot. Um, I'm curious, like Stephanie, like you mentioned, so you've done buy side, you've done sell side. What was it that made you want to pursue a career in um, finance and investing? What was that for you? Okay, so this is going to be really simple. Um, I wanted to make money, number one. Um, and this is a great career for uh, for that. Um, and I also wanted to make a difference. The time At the time I, I, I uh, joined um, the the industry, there were very few women in the business of finance, in investing. Uh, as, as I mentioned, I started on the sell side um, and I started um, uh, at a company called Dean Witter. Um, I'm not sure if people even know that company anymore. Dean Witter and Morgan Stanley merged. 
uh, six years after I was there. But uh, I started on a trading desk and there were about 500 people on the trading desk and I was one of three women. And so kind of made me uh, um, a little bit more anxious and, and, and aggressive in wanting to change that. Uh, and I, I, I had a few mentors in the, in the, in the business that were women um, and uh, they told me to go for it. And so I enjoyed the financial aspect for sure. Not right away, by the way, it took a long, long time, but the finance part of it was interesting. I wanted to be financially independent. That was something that my father had instilled upon me from day one. Uh, seriously, he said, whatever you do, let's become financially independent. So this is a field that you can do that. I wanted to be intellectually challenged. And every single day, I, on the sell side and the buy side, I am intellectually challenged. I remain very humble. Uh, because I can be wrong just as much as I can be right. Uh, you have to learn from your mistakes. And that's okay. Um, when you're right, it feels nothing feels better. Uh, and then find some mentors along the way. And I was very, very fortunate to find some amazing mentors in the business right from day one. And uh, I often tell young women and men that you have to have mentors that help coach you, guide you, who can kind of see a few steps ahead of you to see what your skill set is and where it makes sense for you to, 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 to figure out your path there. And also to have an advocate to the upper management. Because when you first start out, when I first started out, I, I didn't have, certainly didn't have a seat at the table of a CEO um, or even the head of the division. But having people that were out there supporting and communicating was, was very, very important. In addition, just to teaching just to teaching the business and teaching about how to pick stocks. And that's way better than a CFA and an MBA will ever teach you. I know you need those, you know, you need those credentials now, but uh, sitting on a trading desk next to two mentors every single day for six years was pretty, pretty remarkable. I'm very, very fortunate. Of course. How, how did you, um, how did you get connected to, to CNBC? Like, did you ever envision that for yourself that you might want to be on television? Um, what was kind of your, your pathway uh, to being a CNBC contributor? <laughs> so what I really wanted to do when I graduated college, I wanted to be a an anchor on ESPN because oh. I'm a really big sports person. And uh, but I didn't have that in my I didn't go to school schooling for that. I was a I was a finance major. So I just thought, well, I love sports. And there was this anchor back in the day. I don't know if anyone will remember this who's listening, but her name was Chris McKendry. And she was one of the very first pioneers on ESPN as an anchor woman. And she was funny, charismatic, knowledgeable. She could keep up with the, with the men. And again, back in the day, it was a little bit not as common as it is today to have a female anchor. So I wanted to do that. And um, well, uh, I, my, I tried to apply to a lot of different places, but um, finance was my major. And so I also applied uh, to some of the financial institutions and um, got very, very lucky meeting uh, the head of institutional sales at Dean Witter in one of my many interviews. And he said, come aboard. So started in the finance industry, 16 years, as I mentioned, then I went and worked for, for Jim Kramer. People often think that Jim is the one that got me associated with CNBC, but actually he wasn't. Um, it was the CIO at the time at the street.com who got a call from CNBC who was looking for someone to go on TV to actually analyze real time 
uh, Oracle's earnings after the close. <laughs> this was Maria Bartiromo's show and the producer. CNBC and the street, they did have a friendship and a relationship in terms of having some of the street people on TV. So anyhow, my CEO said, well, I don't want to do it, but I know someone that wants to be on TV. And uh, so he sent the producer to me and um, I, I did the show and they uh, they invited me back. And over time, I, I was on many different shows and then they uh, then they decided to make me a contributor, which has been just a pleasure uh, and in every way. It's been such a great, great experience. I love that. And I love that kind of like having the initial vision of wanting to be a sports anchor. And I, I can see how they could kind of be um, related to just like the way the kind of market works and um, all of the action there. OK, um, who, do you have any sports teams that you root for? Who do you root for? Oh, gosh. I mean, I root for like the terrible teams, right? Like I root for the Jets, although they're not terrible. Oh, my producer is so happy he's wearing a Jets hat right now. (laughs) (laughs) I have been a Jets fan only because when I was five years old, my mother gave me a Snoopy doll that had a Jets uniform on it. And my entire family, they were Giants fans. So um, I actually grew up uh, close to, the family was close to uh, the Sims family. I babysat Phil Sims kids, but I just couldn't make my I couldn't make myself be with my family on the Giants. But I do. They're my like second favorite team. But big Rangers fan. My okay. daughter is actually now re- really big Rangers fan. My as husband well. will love that. He's a huge Rangers fan. That's awesome. Yeah. Simbata Jad. We have the we have the we went to the playoffs last year, and my daughter fell in love with that whole situation. So I'm like, it's great. It's fun. Um, and. Uh, and I, I, uh, I, I also, I, I, you know, I, I really like uh, college sports. My college, Boston College, is not very good at football. But my, my husband went to Clemson, so I've become a de facto Clemson fan. Oh, we, have a Clem- yeah. we have a Clemson. They just beat flag us outside. in the ACC championship. So, I yeah, I went to Carolina. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, was that right? Yeah. yeah. So that's fun. It's it's, it's that's, fun. that'll be great. So. Um, but uh, golfer, tennis player, so all those things, okay, all the so, sports are great. Yeah, so you played tennis, and I, I get that. Yeah, so um, let me ask you this, too, um, because I find that um, routines are really important, um, especially, you know, when you're doing, like, a high-pressure work and job and just having that kind of, like, balance. Like, what do you, what do you kind of do? Like, what is your – do you have, like, a ritual or, like, kind of morning routine uh, that, you know, you do that helps you like, kind of, like, balance everything? What do you, What do you do? Yeah, so my I, I'm a runner, and I run every morning. In fact, when I worked with Jim, we used to fight who would email each other first at 3:30 in the morning. That who got on the treadmill first, Whoa. and it would be like, "I'm on the I'm on the treadmill. Don't tell me about the Ranger game because I'm taping it right now." It was really kind of a fun thing. You have to. You're right, though. Spot on. You have to have some sort of an outlet. Um, I don't know if that's if that's exercise, which is always very good, and it could be anything. Uh, is that meditation, is that painting, you need to have a release in some way, you need to step up and get away from the computer, even though it's hard, because I know we're all, you know, kind of on our phones all the time, but it's so, so important. And I just find that exercise helps me. Um, and, and that gets, and at least I get to watch my sporting events. Cause I don't, I don't have the, I'm not up that early. I'm not up that late rather. I'm up so early in the morning. So I can't watch any of this, uh, of the sports 
event. So I DVR everything. And all of my friends and family know, do not mention any sports from the night before until Stephanie has gotten on the treadmill and watched the game. Um, so uh, like I just watched Monday Night Football this morning. <laughs> Wait, it's, what is it? Wednesday? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I, I respect I love it. Um, I think it's, you're right. It's so important to have routines. Um, I love that yours is running. That's the one I've taken up since uh, May is kind of bringing that back into my sunrise morning uh, routine. Um, it's so right. helpful. Okay. You run outside or inside? I run outside because I live in Miami, Florida. So for right oh. now, I could run outside on the beach. I'm oh, so which... jealous. We're getting snow here on Friday. Oh, yeah. I'm so jealous. Sorry. Good for you. Well, if you come down to Miami, you'll have to come do like the in-person um, experience for the podcast. Um, Absolutely. Where can folks learn more or find out more. where can they follow you on social or learn more about, you know, the work that you're doing with Hightower. I'll just kind of pass it back to you. Give you a few minutes. Uh, if you have any parting thoughts for the folks watching and also just where they can find you or learn more. Oh, sure. Well, this has been such fun. I cannot believe we were on for an hour. It just like went like so, so fast and such a nice time to chat with meet with you. Um, and I, I think what you're doing is just terrific. And, and, uh, and all of the guests that you have these special, special guests. So I'm honored to be, to be included and invited in this for sure. Um, I, I'm on Twitter, um, uh, Stephanie underscore link. I'm on LinkedIn, it's Stephanie underscore link, sounds familiar. Uh, but uh, it's it, you, you might find it a little bit boring because it really is all business for sure. Or you can go to Hightower Advisors and you can see kind of the what's going on, what's going on there. I've, I've been really pretty, pretty blessed with finding a firm that um, is in growth mode and is doing so many exciting things in the independent wealth management industry, and uh, and so we're 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 uh, we're doing we're having a lot of fun, a lot of nice people, and uh, we're we're uh, we're learning every day, and that's the thing that keeps me kind of energized is that we can learn something new every day, whether it is the market, whether it is stocks, whether it is anything in in terms of the economy or just in life and, and learning about some of what are the advisors doing. Um, and, uh, and, and we have a hundred over 120 advisor teams and a, over 120 billion in assets under management. So, um, they're doing something right. And I'm, uh, I'm excited to be part of that. Sounds like it. And I love that point. Just learning something new every day. And I certainly learned a lot in this conversation. I took tons of notes. Um, you just had a wealth <laughs> of information and a lot of, um, nice gems in there as well. Uh, Stephanie Link, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Thank you again. Thank you. And have a great holiday. Stay safe. Likewise. Thank Thanks. you.